Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. Welcome to Space 3D. We are delighted to bring you part four and the conclusion of our interview with space historian Jake Allentine. In this episode, co-moderators Emily Carney and Eleanor Arrangers continue their discussion with Jay, delving into some fascinating backstory on his research for his second book, Infinity Beckoned, Adventuring Through the Inner Solar System, 1969-1989. to Jay reveals some of the serendipitous details and sheer luck that led him to uncovering significant scholarly additions to the historical record as it pertains to the Russian Lunokhod rover programs. Finally, we get Jay's thoughts on whether the subject of his two books, Unmanned Spacecraft, are superior to humanity for exploring the universe. The answer, not surprisingly, is as thoughtfully considered as the work and creativity that went into his first two books. You have a second book. Uh, I believe that one came out in 2015. Uh, that discusses a lot of missions uh, involving the uh, inner solar system. Um, in my opinion, uh, one of the original research in the book um, involves the the chapters uh discussing uh, i think there's several chapters if i'm if i'm not mistaken i could be uh discussing uh the sitting cosmonauts of the, of the lunokhod program as a westerner i didn't know much about that program other than uh the soviets launched two rovers to the moon in the 70s that's about as far as i had gotten with that um uh because a lot of you know how a lot of uh space reference books are about robotic space flight. They're very uh, bone dry. They don't, they basically give you, you know, here's some launch dates, uh, payload mass, um, where it went, some pretty pictures. <laughs> so I was very impressed with that. There was a lot of original research in there and stuff that nobody had ever seen or really found out. Um, how hard was it to secure some of the interviews from those subjects and, to talk to those people, uh, especially because during the era, I'm sure they, you know, they had been working in in the in the early 70s. They were probably shrouded in secrecy. Absolutely, yeah. Um, there was there was so much there. Boy, it's just like you say, Emily. Where what I knew going in was that the Soviets had two rovers on the surface of the moon, and and what was so fascinating to me about that was that they were controlled in real time. You know, with, with the Curiosity Mars rover, they send up a command. It takes minutes and minutes to get there. And then the rover is going to receive the command. It's going to think about it, you know, make sure it's a valid command and all this stuff. And then it's going to execute it, and the thing's going to move 10 centimeters, and then there's going to be another command or whatever. But here, they were actually being operated in real time. Somebody pushed the button and moved the joystick to make it go, and the rover moved forward. And granted, it was on a one-and-a-half-second delay, but I would call that real time. You know, they, they tell it when to go, and they tell it when to stop. And I didn't know much more about that. It was like, you know, same kind of thing as when I wrote the proposal for my first book is, well, who was controlling these things, and where were they controlled from? And... The, the depictions that I was reading were, were pretty skinny. Um, there were a couple of sources that helped me start to crack that open. 
Uh, one is is from this guy who has written just some some fundamental books on Soviet space history. This man is Zeev Siddiqui. Uh, he had written uh, an account of the the development of Lunacod that started to help me understand that world. And then Andy Chaikin had written just an excellent article for a Smithsonian Air and Space Magazine called The Other Moon Landings, in which he had found one of the actual rover operators uh, and interviewed the guy. And then he had found another uh, a scientist, a geologist, who worked on that program and interviewed him for that article. And the geologist, Alexander Bazilyevsky, completely lucked out. Uh, the guy speaks really good English. And so that really helped open things right there. Uh, but then you, know, you get to a point where you've kind of built up a level of trust with these people where they say, oh, well, now you should talk to this person and now you should talk to this person. And that started to get me in front of these other people. And then the deeper you go, uh, the more you run into a language barrier, which is like, okay, this isn't funny. I'm trying to communicate to this person. And there is this wall in the way that is the Russian language. And so I, I would never say right at this point that, that I speak Russian, but I, I started digging into it uh, to try to understand it. I figured that the more I, that I understood the language, the better that I could understand the people. Um, got in touch with that rover operator, and that led to other rover operators who started leading back to some of the people who actually created the rover. You talk to one person, you build some trust with him. He says, oh, well, you should talk to my other friend, Israel Rosenzweig. He's actually never talked about creating the rovers before. Um, and so those were just some of the the happiest discoveries to find someone who has never talked about this mission that you are desperate to describe. And you're going to get this whole original story. Um, there, this man, Israel Rosenzweig, uh, he was one of the engineers on the Lunacod chassis, uh, speaks no English, actually lives in America, but still doesn't speak in English, and had never told his story before. And I actually had completed my drafts of the Lunacod chapters. And there was a different rover chassis engineer, uh, Mikhail Malenkov, who had uh, looked at the material and I think he like had his granddaughter read him the, the drafts and translate to Russian or something like that. And he said, you know, this is pretty good. You should contact my friend Israel Rosenzweig. And I'm like, oh, I thought I was done. <laughs> I really want to move on, dude. And uh, the Lunacod section is fat as it is. But then I got in touch with uh, Israel Rosenzweig and he started writing me these letters in Russian that I was really struggling to translate in the beginning. Um, and eventually had to uh, find someone who uh, grew up in the same area that he did in St. Petersburg, uh, just so if there are any dialect issues or whatever, I could make sure that I had those nailed down. Uh, but then it was just such a, a wonderfully moving human story, not only about the technical particulars of making the chassis, but about the struggles. Uh, and he was really embarrassed about the struggles initially. He didn't want to talk about them. Um, you know, the fact that, uh, number one, just living in the Soviet Union and the standard of living was very low. Uh, number two, that he was Jewish and he faced an additional level of discrimination on top of that. 
but I felt like, you know, these are the, the really important things that I want to get out. And so, I, you know, I start getting that information from him and I'm like, how dare I call these chapters complete when I have this information? There is just no way that I can sit on this information. Uh, if there's one person that I wish I could have interviewed, it would have been the man who was sort of the uh, the, the lead designer on Lunacod, this man, Georgi Babakin. Uh, he died, I think, the year I was born. I mean, he died decades ago. Uh, but I'm still not sure how. I managed to find his son. And his son was old enough that he had actually grown up and worked on these Luna sample return missions as well as worked on Lunacod. Uh, and I was really able to get the story of this father-son story that, I mean, nobody else had, frankly, of, of the, the kind of guy that Georgi Babakin was, about how he loved to drive, he loved to ride bikes, he loved to go mushroom picking in the forest, uh, and that he could, like, fall asleep in an instant. You know, all these things. Uh, but then even on top of it, I mean, it's ridiculous that someone as important as Georgi Babakin, uh, it, the, the story of his death, it's... The guy totally died at his peak. It was completely unexpected. And all we knew was that he died. But here is his son, Nicolay, who is finally able to tell the story of how his father died, how he was discovered, what actually happened to him and everything. Uh, I felt like that was something else that I was able to contribute. And, and it was just one of these things, Emily, where I just, the more that I learned the more that I wanted to know. And one thing that was actually driving me out of my mind, I was just climbing the walls, trying to figure out where they operated the Lunacods from. I kept hearing that it was the Simferopol Space Center. And Simferopol is the capital city of Crimea. And we all have heard about Crimea now because the Russians marched yeah. in and stole it back from Ukraine, right? And so here I am, like, night after night, I'm pouring over Google Maps images, trying to find this nebulous Symphonopol Space Flight Center. You know, and I asked that geologist, I asked the rover driver, and they were all, oh, yeah, Symphonopol, Symphonopol. It wasn't actually in Symphonopol. It was, like, 20 miles down the highway. And even to this day, people... They weren't wanting to tell me where it actually was. And I'm still not sure what that was about. I could have tied into the how there were some people that I contacted who worked on Lunacod who were like, I'm not going to talk to Americans. You know, I'll, I'll talk to Bezlyevsky, I'll talk to Malenkov or Rosenzweig, but I, I don't talk to Americans. And that would always make me so sad because it's like there's three people who know what happened in a room during a conversation. Two of them are dead. I found the third guy, but he won't talk to me because I'm an American. So the fact that they didn't want to tell me where the the actual Lunacod control facility was, maybe it played into that. Uh, I, I suppose I'll never really know. But the night that I found... The, the actual picture on Google Maps of the Lunacod Control Center, everything lined up with the, the radio dish and the buildings and everything. I, I was just so excited. Uh, and then I found this guy uh, who lives in Simferopol. Like I say, it's about 20 miles down the road 
from the actual city where the Lunacod control center was. Uh, the actual city where the Lunacods were controlled from was this little uh, town called Shkulnoi. And Shkulnoi was a, a town that had been purposely created to be a military facility. It was a Soviet space tracking station. Uh, it was deliberately placed at a low point in the earth so that if you were driving by on the highway, all you would see was the school building near the road. Well, that was a, a dodge. It was a decoy, same as the name Shkonoi, which means school. It was really a military facility hiding behind there. And they basically took advantage of the fact that it had this infrastructure for being a space tracking facility. They converted one of the buildings into the Lunacod Control Center. And I found my friend Alexander in Simferopol, and he's like, hey, my wife grew up in Shkonoi. Her dad was a soldier there. And I'm like, no kidding. And he'd say, yeah, what do you want to see in Shkonoi? And I'm like, well, I'd really love to see what it was like to walk from the first guard gate down the road to the Lunacon control building. And so Alexander, on a Saturday, he would ride his bike up to Shkonoi, and he would video record the, the walk, and then he would upload it to a private YouTube channel and send me a link along with his Google Earth track so I could, I could open up exactly where he was walking on Google Earth. And so I was able to put in all this detail about Shkonoi, about the high curbs and the random shrubbery and the cracked walks and what the guard gates looked like. And people read the book and they're like, when were you there? And I've never been there. It was all Alexander. So that was a huge, huge serendipitous moment. I mean, just a complete stroke of luck to find this guy who lived there and was as into the history of it that I was. And then when you when you circle back around to the rover operators and you you send them stills from the video of the control building and the walks and the buildings, then these guys start to open up a little more and tell you more about what it was really like. Uh, and, and that's really kind of the, the main reasons why I was wow. able to go in so deep on that Lunacot story. Another serendipitous type of uh, story. Yeah, there were there were a few of those, and and finding Alexander, I mean, that was a, a huge one. Just in the acknowledgments, I think Alexander got a paragraph, <laughs> you know, because he just made really just a substantial contribution. Um, there were times when I would get my hands on, uh, like some some blueprints uh, and whatnot, and he was able to. Uh, translate the different captions on them. Uh, there were times when I was able to find close-up pictures of the control consoles, and he would help me understand like what the different captions, what the different abbreviations mean. Um, there was a sign that hung on the door of the control room that had some funny abbreviation, and he's like, oh, you know, that's a short way to say hardware. He's like, oh, all right, you know, just just all these little things and helping me understand the culture and what the snack breaks were like and when they would have TV, uh, tea, excuse me, when they would have tea. And and it's all those little details that you just try to weave together and make a story out of them. Unbelievable. Incredible. <laughs> um, I, I actually have one additional question. So, and you kind of touched on it a little bit when we were asking at the beginning how you kind of got involved in all of this and that you were a uh, 
space fan from way back, but given all the work that you've done on the unmanned missions, where where do you fall in terms of uh, manned exploration versus unmanned exploration? Mm, it's a great question. And I really think we need both. I really think there's a place for both. I think the two are extremely complementary. And to to tack on to Lunacod, you know, if, if we look at what, let's say, the first Lunacod did, it was on the moon for 10 or 11 months, and and it was driven basically as often as possible. When the sun was down, they would put it into a hibernation mode. But during the two-week lunar day, they would they would start it up and operate it as soon as they could. And then they would put it away um, at the lunar dusk as late as they possibly could. And it it traveled miles and miles. It took tens of thousands of photographs. It took hundreds of different readings uh, with multiple experiments. It took many, many, many high-quality panoramic photographs, and it conducted a program of exploration that you simply couldn't have done with Apollo. You, you couldn't have put an Apollo mission on the moon for 10 months and, and sent them off on that. I mean, to, to take all those readings and perform all those measurements, you just you couldn't have done it. But by the same token, when you have a robot explorer on the moon, the robot isn't going to turn its head on a whim and catch something out of the corner of its eye. The Lunacod rover, it isn't going to tell you how it feels. It isn't going to give you its impression. And that's what we really need the humans for. We need to know what it's like to be out there. We can only get that from the humans. And we need that human curiosity to let something catch the corner of your eye. The orange soil that was discovered on Apollo 17 is a perfect example. You know, they were just going along and all of a sudden Jack Schmidt goes, hey, there is orange soil over here. Well, Lunacod 1 would never have turned its head and noticed something, recognized the significance of something, and said, hey, guess what I found? And, and so, you know, you, you really need both. Um, the rover, it isn't going to be able to uh, collect the samples the way that the humans are. Um, it isn't going to notice things. It isn't probably going to notice the, the Genesis rock, you know, from Apollo 15. There's just something about having the eyes on the scene, no matter high quality, how high of a quality the camera is or anything, it just can't compare to having people out there. So uh, I really think you're going to need both. This is fantastic. And I have to admit, I was at Space Fest this year, but I am guilty. I had to leave on Sunday and did not hear what I heard was an epic presentation. <laughs> so I'm really hoping that uh, I'll be able to uh, be able to attend your talk um, this upcoming year. So looking forward to it very much. I'm so glad that you uh, were able to uh, take the time this evening for this. Thank you so much for having me on, Eleanor. This was just wonderful. 
We hope you enjoy this four-part interview with space historian Jake Allentine. Tune in for our next podcast, where we discuss weather satellites with engineer Tim Walsh. For Emily Carney and Tom Hill, this is Eleanor Rangers for Space 3D.